0: Our Father, we do thank you this morning uh, that this is our story and this is our song, uh, that we can praise Jesus as our Savior all the day long. Father, I pray that right now you would be with me, that you would help me to communicate your truth. I pray that you would be with us, that we would be receptive to hear your truth. Lord, we need your Spirit to be among us. We need your Spirit to give us illumination. Uh, to help us to understand the truth, to love the truth, and to embrace the truth, that we may be transformed by the power of your word. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever thought about the difference between wisdom and knowledge? One person quipped, Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing better than to put tomatoes in your fruit salad. Uh, Or or perhaps uh, a story could make this point even better. Uh, There was a plane flight with only four people on board, the pilot, a young boy scout, an elderly pastor, and a scholarly-looking gentleman. Suddenly, the pilot announced on the intercom uh, that they were having engine trouble and they were going to crash. But he continued, he said, well, there's good news, which is that we have parachutes, but the bad news is that we only have three. And then, explaining that he had to make a full report to the authorities, the pilot quickly put on a parachute and jumped. Well, the scholarly gentleman stood up next and explained that he had studied at Oxford, Harvard, Yale, and other such schools, and that he was one of the most intelligent persons in the world. He said that the world needed his wisdom and great learning. So he grabbed a parachute and jumped. Then, the pastor Considered his age and the fact that he'd lived a full life. So he told the boy that he should take the last parachute. The Boy Scout said, don't worry, we'll both be okay. The most intelligent person in the world just put on my backpack before he jumped. (laughs) And so as stories like this humorously illustrate, there's a world of difference between knowing lots of information and actually being equipped for real life. And it's very possible to be intelligent, even impressively so, and yet lack true wisdom. Now my purpose here is not to make a semantic argument about how we ought to use the word wisdom versus the word knowledge, because I don't think that the Bible consistently distinguishes those particular words, and that's really not the important point. But my point is that not everything that we call wisdom is the same and i would suggest to you that true wisdom is not just knowing things but knowing the things that really count and having skill to apply that knowledge to your life as proverbs chapter 9 verse 10 says the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy one is understanding you see, wisdom begins with knowing and fearing God, because that's what really counts. And you or I could have all the highest degrees from Oxford, Harvard, and Yale, but just like this man who couldn't tell the difference between a parachute and a backpack, if we don't know our own Creator, then we don't know the one thing that really counts. And so as we turn this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, we're going to be focusing on this theme of Wisdom. And we're going to see a certain kind of wisdom that Paul rejects, and we're going to see another kind of wisdom that Paul imparts, and then we're going to see the true source of spiritual wisdom. Now remember uh, that this chapter 2 comes in the context of a whole discussion about the problem of disunity in Corinth. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So there's quarreling and division in the church. It's over preference in preachers. And this seems to be rooted in the way that the Corinthians were enamored with wisdom. And eloquence and rhetorical impressiveness. And they were thinking that the key to a successful ministry is to have a preacher who excelled in those things. And they wanted to align behind those preachers. They wanted to be identified with those kind of preachers. It was feeding their pride and leading to division. And Paul responds by this by saying, first of all, have you forgotten that the very message that we preach is utterly ridiculous in the eyes of the world? He says in chapter 1, verse 18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And then secondly, he says, have you forgotten to look around at yourselves? Why would you think that wisdom and eloquence is the key to success in ministry when so few of you are wise according to worldly standards? When so few of you are mighty, so few of you are of noble birth. You no, know, God has chosen the foolish things to put to shame the, th- the wise. The weak things to put to shame the strong. The things that are low and despised and the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. And now, as he continues, we get to chapter 2, he's going to say, in effect, and have you forgotten the method I used in my preaching? And the way that God used that to bring you to salvation. He's reminding them of his own example and showing them something of his ministry methodology and how it runs totally counter to the wisdom of the world. So first of all, look with me at verses 1-5. through And this is point 1. It's the wisdom Paul rejects. Chapter 2, verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness, and in fear, and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. All right, so there's a wisdom here that Paul rejects. He says in verse 1, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Verse 4, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. All right. So what kind of wisdom is this which Paul is shunning and avoiding? Well, it's certainly a wisdom characterized by lofty speech and plausible words. But it's also a wisdom that goes hand in hand with a certain kind of ministry methodology. It's a wisdom that goes hand in hand with thinking, you know, Corinth is a city full of people who are impressed with powerful rhetoric. It's a bunch of people that care deeply about philosophy. It's a bunch of people that love eloquent speech and impressive personalities. Therefore, the best way to win the Corinthians is to excel at those things. right? Surely the best preachers for Corinth would be those who have those characteristics. And surely a man like Paul who had an impressive amount of learning, who knew lots of philosophy, surely he could use that and rely on that to help to get people to want to listen to him and persuade them to follow Christ. And of course, that line of thinking sounds reasonable. It seems logical. It seems plausible. In fact, I I think it's very similar, if not the same kind of logic that that so many churches employ today. Uh, You know, I think of, Story of a church that uh, decided we're going to send out a survey to all the members of our community to ask them, What would you like in a church? You know, and it's thinking, Well, you know, we need to become all things to all people. We need to reach people where they're at. So maybe if we can just become a little more like the world, we can win the world. Uh, it's, it's the same kind of thinking that we see in churches that, that say, Well, you know, young people today, they're, they're just all about music. You know, so maybe if we can make the music more like a concert, if we can dim the lights and we can meet the young people where they're at, well, as, as long as it can draw them in and then they're going to hear the message, well, that's all that really counts, right? Or we think, you know, people need to feel like the church is culturally relevant. You know, people need to come in and feel like we're in touch with cultural trends and the movies and the celebrities. And so if we can incorporate that into what we have to say, people will, will want to listen to us and it will draw people in. But then we can share the gospel. And so we bring people here and that's what we should do. Or, or we think, you know, we live in a technological age. Surely preaching is just too old-fashioned. I mean, people today like videos they, they like discussion groups. They like live streams and virtual things. You know, so surely we could adapt to some other medium of communication that would be more effective and, and could better relate to the world and win the world. But I want you to notice here in the, in the first five verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 how Paul's approach and his thinking runs completely counter to that kind of logic. Instead of coming to the Corinthians in the way that would appeal to the culture, he comes to them in a way that would seem utterly foolish, weak, and ineffective. He says, I did not come with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Nothing but Christ. And and specifically, he emphasizes the cross of Christ, the very message and focus about Christ, which was the most seemingly shameful, foolish, scandalous part about the message. He says, that's what I preached, that's what I focused on. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Not like those impressive, powerful rhetoricians, but as a weak stammering man who stood before men not to impress them, but in the fear of God. Knowing that everything he would say, he would be giving an account before God for. And Paul continues, in my speech and my wisdom were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Paul says, my goal among you was not to convince you by the sheer power of my reasoning, or win you over by the winsomeness of my oratory. Paul says, my goal was to openly and clearly declare the gospel of Christ so that God would be pleased to save people by, the power, by His power and His Spirit. In other words, Paul, I, I think he saw himself preaching akin to Ezekiel in that valley of dry bones. You know What does Ezekiel do? He stands before dry bones and he prophesies. He speaks to them. He doesn't try to like tie some strings around the bones and think if I give it a little extra help, maybe that will cause them to start moving and that will give the Word the power. No, he just spoke. And he relied completely on the power of the Word of God, on the working of the Spirit of God. He believed that God is the one who would give the increase. And that's why Paul says in verse 5 that he did this way. He approached his ministry with this kind of method, in this kind of way, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men. Not in human cleverness, not in human ingenuity, not in the sheer strength of human argument, but in the power of God. And just think about it. I mean, the, the Corinthians, they had heard so many powerful speakers come along and they would listen to them. And and the really persuasive ones, they would believe and think, you know, I'm going to follow this guy. I really like what he has to say. And then you can imagine, you know, years later, another guy shows up who seems even more persuasive, with even more plausible arguments and even better rhetoric. And what happens? They get swayed over there. And then Paul comes. No impressive rhetoric. No flaunting of great learning. Nothing but a seemingly foolish message about a crucified king preached in weakness and fear. And yet by the power of God, that is what these Corinthian believers trusted in. That's the message that they heard and then was accompanied by the gift of the Spirit. Who comes to them and gifts them supernaturally. And then transforms their very lives. That these people who were slaves of sin in a kingdom of darkness might be brought into the kingdom of righteousness and light. And friends, of course, all of this happens to display the glory of whom? Not Paul, but God. You see, Paul's method in ministry was to trust the power of God so that God would receive the glory and so that the Corinthians would trust, be impressed not with him, and glorify the wisdom of man, but believe and adore the power and the wisdom of God. And so, brothers and sisters, the the point we should draw from this is that our ministry methods matter. And faithfulness is about something more than getting the gospel right. As important as it is that that we communicate the the gospel truly and clearly, um, it also matters how we do it. And it matters the forms through which we try to present it. And we need to think about those side of it, of how we go about ministering and the methodology of our ministry. And we need to ask, is, are we doing this in the way that will bring maximum glory to God? Are we presenting the gospel in a way which trusts God's power or human ingenuity? Are we presenting the gospel and ministering in a way which relies on the sufficiency of Scripture or more so the creativity of man? And if we really do that, relying on God and His Word, um, trusting just the power of the gospel itself, well, to do that is to reject the wisdom of this world. It's to reject the wisdom that so enamored the Corinthians. And it says, trust the fact that God by His Spirit and through His Word is mighty to save His people as we are simply faithful to humbly and lovingly proclaim Christ and Him crucified. Right, so that's the wisdom Paul rejects. Well, let's look secondly at the wisdom Paul embraces. I want you to look with me at verses 6-10. through 10. Paul writes, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. What God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So Paul clarifies here in verse 6 that he's not against wisdom categorically. In fact, in verse 7 he says that we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. Now at first blush, this might sound like a mystical, anti-intellectual kind of thing. Uh, But actually the contrast here isn't between an intellectual worldly wisdom and a non-intellectual spiritual wisdom, but between a wisdom based in human ingenuity and figured out by man versus a wisdom that comes only by revelation from God. Paul says in verse 9, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined. right? The, something that no man has figured out. What God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Right? And so what are the, these things? Well, I think if you go back to verse 8, we get a clue. Where Paul says, None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. In other words, these these amazing things that Paul is saying, no eye has seen or ear heard, it's talking about the cross. It refers to that. In fact, it refers back to the very same testimony of God Paul mentions in chapter 2, verse 1. And then he summarizes in chapter 2, verse 2, when he says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is the secret and hidden wisdom of God decreed before the ages for our glory and now revealed by the Spirit. Paul is talking about the wonder and the glory of Christ and the Gospel, of Christ and Him crucified. And friends, that's not a mystical or anti-intellectual message. It's not one that we come to believe by setting our brains aside. But it is a message that utterly defies our expectations. It's a message that transcends our ability to ever figure out on our own. I mean, who would have ever thought that that man hanging naked and in shame, being crucified on a cross, that that could be the Lord of glory Himself. It defies our expectations. We would never imagine that the Lord of glory would so humble Himself as to come down and to die for sinners like us. And yet friends, that is the wondrous news of the Gospel. That we have a God who loves us. Who gave Himself willingly for us to suffer and die so that all of our sin could be forgiven. And friend, if you're here today and and you are not a believer, that good news is for you. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's why we are all dying people in a world of death. And yet God loves us. And He in Christ, the Son of God, has come down and He has given Himself as the sacrifice that our sins require. Because either He must die or we must suffer in hell forever. And He came to take our place on the cross. And if you repent of sin and you trust in Him, all your sin will be forgiven. And you will be received by your Heavenly Father. Now I also just want to take a moment and consider how history itself bears witness to the truth of Paul's words here. He says in verse 6, that the wisdom of this age... And the rulers of this age are doomed to pass away. Friends, just consider for a moment. You know, those Corinthian orators, they were pretty high and mighty in their time. Everyone was very impressed by their wisdom and all their insight. And Do any of us know anything about them now? I mean, do, do we sit here today and reflect on the greatness of their wisdom? What happened to it? It passed away with them. It has been long forgotten, long buried in history. On the other hand, what about that foolish, shameful, ridiculous message that Paul was preaching? That to the world looked like something that was just lunacy. Yet here we are, 2,000 years later, reading this very book. Reflecting on the glory of that very message. And it's not just us, it's churches all throughout the world. I mean, this is living testimony to the fact that this is the secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory, which the rulers of this age did not understand. But that now, God has revealed by His Spirit through His Word. What a wonderful thing. And so the whole point here is that the wisdom that Paul embraces, the wisdom that Paul is imparting, it's not a wisdom of men. It's not. He's saying, why would you seek after this worldly wisdom that's just going to pass away? That's so fleeting and temporary when there is this wisdom that comes from God Himself. A wisdom that no man can figure out. A wisdom that God alone can reveal. A wisdom that God planned from before the foundation of the world that He has been working about and now has displayed in Christ. And now it's the wisdom that we can treasure, that we can grow in as we look and know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. You know, I said at the beginning that true wisdom is not just knowing things, but knowing the things that really count and having skill to apply that knowledge to your life. So brothers and sisters, how well do we know what really counts? How well do we know Christ and Him crucified? And to what degree is that the defining principle for our lives? You know, it's been well said that we never graduate from the gospel. The Christian life begins with knowing Christ and Him crucified, and it ends with knowing Christ and Him crucified more and more. Notice verse 10. Paul says these things, right, referring back to the the gospel itself, God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Right, the implication there is that the depths of God pertain to Christ and Him crucified. That's not just the elementary truth of Christianity, that is the calculus that we will spend all eternity marveling at. Or again, look at verse 6. Paul says, Yet among the mature we impart wisdom. The Corinthians thought they were so spiritually mature because of all the worldly wisdom that they had imbibed. And Paul is saying no. Spiritual maturity is about finding the wisdom that comes from Christ. As Paul told the Colossians, He says, he was yearning for them to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Therefore, he says, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith. And also consider what James says. About spiritual wisdom or wisdom that comes from above. James writes in chapter 3, verse 17, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, and sincere. You see, knowing Christ doesn't just fill your head with facts, it changes your life and transforms your heart. Now, I said before, this is not an anti-intellectual wisdom. But it's not a merely intellectual wisdom either. You see, when, the, when we come to know Christ, it's a wisdom that, that brings into alignment all of our faculties. Our mind, our heart, our will. The Spirit works in Christ to bring us, which is so divided because of sin, back to who we're created to be. So with all of our being, we might know Christ and love Christ and serve Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, that's really what true wisdom is. This wisdom from above. This wisdom of knowing Christ and Christ crucified and knowing Him in such a way that it radically transforms our life so that we think like Christ and we walk like Christ and we live for Christ. Well, that brings us to our third point, which is what is the source of spiritual wisdom? Right? We, we've seen this worldly wisdom that Paul rejects. We've seen this spiritual wisdom that Paul imparts. Well, how do we get it? Look with me again at verses 10 through 16. And yes, this overlaps by one verse with the point before. The verses 10 through 16. Paul says, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now, as I said, we've, we've seen the worldly wisdom that Paul rejects, the spiritual wisdom that Paul imparts, and we've also noted that one of the key differences between them is that the worldly wisdom comes from man's ingenuity, but the spiritual wisdom comes through the revelation of God. right? And so obviously we can say right away, the source of spiritual wisdom is God Himself. And we receive God's wisdom through His Word and through the faithful proclamation of the Word, as Paul has been talking about in chapter 1 and then the first five verses of this chapter in particular. However, Paul shifts our attention here to another need because the Word of God and a faithful human interpreter of that Word is still not enough. Paul's reminding us here that we need a heavenly interpreter as well. And so throughout this section, Paul is emphasizing the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now he says plainly in verse 10 that the Spirit... "...is the revealer of the things of God, for the Spirit is the, the only one who truly knows God and who comprehends the thoughts of God." Right? And so how does he do it and why is it necessary for the Spirit to reveal these things to us? Well, notice, first of all, that Paul makes mention here of two different categories of people. There are those who are spiritual, which he mentions at the end of verse 13. And there are those who are natural, which he mentions at the beginning of verse 14. And the spiritual people are able to understand spiritual truths as they're being communicated to them by the Spirit of God. But then in verse 14, he says that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. It's as if for this natural person, this person who is not a spiritual person, it's as if the Bible comes to them in a foreign language. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't compute. And this is not because there's something defective about God's Word. It's not because the Bible is unclear. It's not because the Bible comes in some sort of secret hidden code. It's because there's a deficiency in us. It's because as Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Unless you've been born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. The natural person is the man who has not been born again. And therefore the things of the Spirit, the spiritual truth of God's Word, it doesn't compute. It doesn't make sense. But then Jesus is saying there is this rebirth where the Spirit causes us to be changed, inwardly transformed, and then we become able to receive and understand the truth of God. In fact, probably many of us remember something of that experience in our own life. Perhaps you remember before you were a believer how you would come to church and you'd hear sermons or maybe you'd pick up the Bible and you'd read it and it just seemed like folly. It just didn't make sense. It didn't compute. It seemed unintelligible. It almost seemed like a foreign language. But then there was this time in your life when it was like the lights turned on. All of a sudden, it was like the, the truth of God's Word was just so clear and so real. So different. It was like, the, as Luther said, the gates of paradise swung open and I walked through. Friends, perhaps you experienced something of that. Not because all of a sudden you understood everything in the Bible. Certainly none of us do. Probably all of us have many, many questions. And yet the difference is you came to understand that central truth of Christ and Him crucified. And suddenly this wonderful gospel of grace, this wonderful assurance of your salvation, this recognition that God is a loving Father who spared not even His own Son but delivered Him up for you so that you could be redeemed from your sin and brought near to Him, suddenly that became so clear. And then in light of that, all the rest of Scripture, it it starts to make sense. It starts to fit together. You see something of the beauty and the clarity of it. And so Paul's point in this section is that in order to receive this spiritual wisdom... We have to have that experience. We have to be born again. And then not only do we need the Spirit to regenerate our heart, to enable us to see and believe, then even as believers, we continue to need the Spirit to be our heavenly interpreter. We continue to need Him to help us see. We need the Word taught and proclaimed, but we need that heavenly interpreter to help us to understand it. And I just want to meditate briefly on two applications of this. First, what this means for us is that every bit of spiritual wisdom you have is a gift of God. If you trust in Christ, it's not because you were smarter or wiser than the next person. It's because by the very grace of God, the Spirit of God gave you eyes to see. And if you've grown in that wisdom... Well, you didn't grow in wisdom because of your great wisdom and ingenuity and all the rest. You grew because again, by the grace of God, the Spirit of God has continued to work in your life, continued to show you wonderful things in the Word of God. And that should make us so thankful. As verse 12 says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God the Spirit who helps us to see all of salvation, all of this is a gift of God's grace. Just to overwhelm us with God's goodness that we may be grateful, thankful people. And what this also should cause us to reflect on is that all of the spiritual wisdom that we will ever gain in the future will also only come by the grace of God. And so therefore, when we pick up our Bibles to read, we should pray like the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 18 Open my eyes, O Lord, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. We should pray like Paul did for the Ephesians in chapter 1 where he says, he prays for them that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, and that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened let us continue to pray that the Spirit would illuminate God's Word to help us to understand it and receive it. And also, consider that if we understand that our salvation is entirely owing to the grace of God through the ministry of the Spirit, then, as Paul was talking about at the beginning of the chapter, why should we rely on worldly methods or worldly wisdom to try to save others? Like, Why should we think that human ingenuity would be the key to effectiveness in ministry? As Paul says in verse 13, Let us impart the truth of the gospel in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Don't think that you can make the spiritual truth of the gospel make sense to the natural man. Only the Spirit can do that. We simply must be faithful to share the truth. I think John Calvin explained this verse well when he, said it, when he said this, the words taught by the Spirit are such as are adapted to a pure and simple style, corresponding to the dignity of the Spirit rather than to an empty ostentation. For in order that eloquence may not be wanting, we must always take care that the wisdom of God be not polluted with any borrowed and profane luster. Paul's manner of teaching was of such a kind that the power of the Spirit shone forth in it single and unattired without any foreign aid. So in other words, he's saying don't try to decorate the spiritual truth of the gospel with worldly luster. Rely on the power of the Spirit instead. And friends, what an encouragement this should be to us to share the gospel. Because I'm guessing that for most of us, the temptation is not so much to try to decorate the gospel with whatever impressiveness we can add, but rather to feel ashamed of sharing the gospel because we think, I'm so unimpressive. Why would the world listen to me? I I, I can't win the world. I, I don't have anything eloquent to say. And Paul's whole point here is that doesn't matter at all. In fact, if anything, might not God be more pleased to use the weakest of instruments, the most stammering tongue like Moses, to be the vessel that He would use to bring people to Himself? Just to show that the power isn't of us, but it is of Him? So friends, let this be a great encouragement to us to share the gospel. To shun a worldly wisdom that relies on the ingenuity of man and instead to embrace the spiritual wisdom that focuses on Christ and Him crucified, knowing that that is revealed by the Spirit of God. And as we do that, notice the fruit mentioned, this last thing in verses 15 and 16. Paul says, "The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now I think it's sort of hidden here, but but there's fruit mentioned. And it's the fruit of assurance and unity. Paul says that the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself judged by no one. Now he doesn't mean this in the sense of if you're a spiritual person, you become a know-it-all or you kind of attain this position where you are just above ever being rebuked by anyone. What he's getting at here is really the wonderful assurance that comes from knowing what God has said in His Word is absolutely sure and reliable and true. It's the kind of assurance we have when the Spirit Himself illuminates Christ and Him crucified, and the clarity with which God's Word proclaims the truth of God. I think a way to illustrate this would be think of Stephen uh, in the book of Acts and how his opponents could not withstand the wisdom and the Spirit with which he was speaking. And even then as he was judged and persecuted by men, he could gaze up into heaven And know that he was accepted before God. And friends, that's the sort of assurance that comes hand in hand with real spiritual wisdom. With really knowing Christ and Him crucified. Not being arrogant about all the things we think we know that we really don't know. But knowing the one thing that really counts. And knowing that we have assurance in His name. And then secondly, notice the unity. Remember that this whole passage is in the context of Paul addressing the disunity in Corinth. We've seen how worldly wisdom only fuels pride and division. But spiritual wisdom, as we see in verse 16, produces in us the mind of Christ. The mind of the one who though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Who came to us in in the form and likeness of men. And then, humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's a mind which learns to count others more important than ourselves. A mind which learns to do all things supremely for the glory of God, for the display of His power and in reliance on His Spirit. And brothers and sisters, if we grow in spiritual wisdom that we, have, that we would share the mind of Christ then our churches will be united churches. We'll be a united people. We'll be a humble people, a loving people, united together in Christ. And so in light of this, may we seek the true spiritual wisdom of Christ and Him crucified. Knowing that that's the thing that really counts. And knowing Him in such a way that He might radically transform our life into His likeness. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for Your Spirit. We thank You that by Your Spirit, You've helped us to see the glory and the wonder of Christ and Him crucified. And we pray that You would help us to see more and more of His glory and wonder in the days and months and years to come. We pray that You would give us wisdom, that we would learn how to minister in a way that does not glorify our ingenuity or creativity, but glorifies you and relies on your power. We pray that you would guide us. In Jesus' name, amen.